G'day guys, and welcome back to another Glory Days episode. This one is an absolute beauty. We recap the 1984 North Aubrey Hoppers Premiership in the Ovens and Murray Football League. This club pulled off one of the most incredible off-field comebacks to claim one of the best grand finals in the league's history. A huge thank you to episode sponsors for making it possible. North Aubrey Football and Netball Club, Martins Bus Lines, North Aubrey Tire Power, MLM Electrical, Lavington News Agency, Rudy Johnson Real Estate, and the North Aubrey Players and Administration from 1984. Okay, let it rip, Robbie. G'day all, great to have you back. Or if you're tuning in for the first time, thank you and fantastic to have you on board. This episode is nothing short of remarkable, with so much happening off the field and so many layers to the whole season, which culminates in a pulsating and emotive grand final. This being the case, it will be told over two episodes, so nothing is missed. Inspiring leadership on and off the field turned around the fortunes of a club that was facing extinction from the season. Such was the financial state of affairs at North Aubrey. This story captures all the moments, emotions and big plays that completed a genuine rags to riches story, as one of those leaders was the North Aubrey captain, Peter Westland, who sadly passed away in December 2020. This episode is in memory of a love figure at his beloved hoppers and the football world in general. I hope you enjoy North Aubrey 1984, Rags to Riches, Episode A. Has there been a better Ovens and Murray Football League Grand Final than 1984? Had there been a better season? Turbulent, unpredictable and fiercely competitive. That was the cutthroat nature of Ovens and Murray Football in 1984. On the field, the fans and supporters were treated to the most even competition in years, with the 1983 Grand Finalists, Lavington Aubrey, both missing finals. Off the field, there was no shortage of dramas and controversies with a strife-ridden and financially crippled North Aubrey at the top of the tree. The North Aubrey Hoppers battled severe financial difficulties, appointed a new administration, lost their captain mid-season to Wodonga as a cloud of gloom and doom was descending over Bunton Park. The Hoppers faced extinction, being almost $70,000 in the red. Players had not been paid for the previous two seasons and were looking at another zero return in 1984. The club was hemorrhaging and in a world of pain, but from somewhere, a group of fighters on and off the field, they found a pulse. The heart started to beep and one of the greatest ever comebacks in Ovens and Murray history was off the operating table and back onto the field of recovery. North Aubrey, after promising so much in 1983, lost its first final and then departed in straight sets the following week when a Gary Ablett masterclass had Myrtleford stage a miraculous come from behind victory. Former Carlton star Martin Cross had signed for his third year as coach in 1984. Cross went on to coach in the Ovens and Murray Football League for a record 23 years and was to become an Ovens and Murray Hall of Fame inductee as well as the North Aubrey Football Netball Club Hall of Fame inductee and the Myrtleford Club. Cross was also coach when Myrtleford won its one and only flag in 1970. Cross explained there was a lot of work to do and the man to do it had been identified. I took the first night training and there was Terry Farrell, Wizza and Timmy. They were the senior players. 
the rest were a lot of kids that had come through the thirds, good kids. Laurie Henry had coached the thirds, I believe. And um, that's where it started. We started with them and then I was to find out that there was no money, uh, there was no committee. And in actual fact, the bloke that left, John Smith, said to me, there's only one bloke that can fix this up and that's Merv McIntosh. I got in touch with Merv McIntosh. I hadn't met Merv, Merv McIntosh before. So Murph said, how many times do I have to get this mob out of trouble? So we obviously had something to do with them prior to that, yep. which I didn't know about. So in a short space of time, there was him and Stan Gogol. They came on and then there was a big meeting. We got all the players together and there was a meeting and Merv, after a period of time, He'd obviously sat down and worked it out with a few people. Norma Hayes, yeah, yeah, she was a good, good lady. And there was a couple other blokes that, that came on board. And so started the regeneration of the North Albury Footy Club. The Hoppers had also addressed the previous year's fade-out and as part of the 1984 planning, was focused on not allowing it to happen again, as Martin Cross explains. While Rudy Johnson said local golfing champion Bernie Bell played a big part in the season. Oh, that was... That was heartbreaking. And I remember we did sit down and review that game at some point after the season. I can't, I don't know whether it was one week, two weeks. I don't know. I was shattered, absolutely shattered. I know my, within myself, it was probably the catalyst to the following year that we had that um, disappointment behind us, but we needed to learn from it, and make the most of your opportunity. We had implemented sayings. We had our little our little words that we used. But our first one was to do with uh, Donald Bradman, right? And Bradman was asked when he was belting them all over the field, how did he set his targets? And he said, I don't set targets. I just played ball by ball. And so we called our words out in the ground, Braddy. And it was that our concentration level was each contest, one ball at a time, not you know, we've got to have a good quarter or we've got to have a good half. It was all about that stuff. Later on, other players, other clubs started asking what we were doing, you know. Yeah. And so we changed it. And we came from uh, Walter Lindrum, who was the greatest billiard player in the world. If he won the toss in a billiard game, no one else got a shot. That's right. Yeah. If someone else made a mistake and he got a shot... That was the end of the game. They even tried to change the rules. So we and, and they asked him, and, and he just said, I just played ball by ball. So we called it Wally then, and we kept altering these names, you know, around our ruck contests, like we had oranges and lemons, which had a, had a had meant, meant, you know, where if I was a rover, where I was to be in the back line or where I was to be on the wing or in the forward line. We had all these little sayings. That we knew, but nobody else knew. That was our secret. So we'd sit in and we'd talk about our secrets. That was for us, nobody else. And I think that brought a, a real closeness from the whole players. They were, they were included, they were involved. And then we had Bernie Bell come on the scene. I was introduced to him. Someone brought him into the rooms after a game. I, I, don't know, I can't remember who that was. But, uh, yeah, I met Bernie and I, I was intrigued by, you know, he used to watch the game through binoculars and stuff like that. He didn't know a lot about footy because he'd been brought up in rugby territory and he was a swimmer and a clever man, a good man, funny man. And uh, he got us into visualising. So on Thursday nights while we were picking the teams, he would have the boys out there and he was funny. He used to tell them stories and stuff like that and we'd hear them laughing their heads off out there. 
But it, it, it put him into visualising. And uh, it was the first time I think anyone up here had probably done it. I don't know. And so I think that helped a great deal to concentrate on, along with what all the other things we were doing to help us to focus and concentrate. And he'd watch, sit up in the box with us and he'd watch and he'd be able to tell me at quarter time who took their eye off the ball, who fumbled because they took their eye off the ball. So he gave me feedback rather than just go out and, you know, yell and shout and stuff like that. We were all about helping the players get their head around why we were behind because we won a lot of games by a bit over a goal. Yes. We came from behind a lot of times and I think it was to do with our perseverance and what we had in our head. We'd be in the hall there at the North Albury club, club rooms and we'd just lay on the ground and he'd just tell us that, you know, don't, don't make a noise and just visualise picking up the football, you know, just go through everything. You know, it was dead quiet. I know some of the players thought, oh, what is, what's going on here? But it actually, it was it was really good because it was good. He was sort of big on getting the, the, the negative noise out of your head and just focus on the positive stuff. And, and uh, yeah, he, you know, visualising, picking up the football, actually putting it onto your boot, visualise getting tackled and that, you, you know, you making sure you, you you can handle that tackle. It was just the little bits and... Uh, it was also getting the outside noise out of your head. And I think, you know, he was important for us as well during the year. North Albury were reasonably active on the recruiting front, but in general had stuck with its current list. Ruckman and 1977 Morris medalist when at Myrtleford, Rod Page was recruited home from Narandra, while Barney Brown Talangata and Graham Cook from Kiwa Sandy Creek were set to have an impact. Roger Peters, who played a couple of practice matches at Essendon in the pre-season, had returned to Button Park. Departures were fullback Lloyd Curtis to Howlong, while the ever-reliable John Pryor had signed with Walbundry. Club legend John Smith would miss the first month due to an ankle injury. Smith was close to playing his 300th game in the Ovens of Murray, having played 298 matches by the end of the 1983 season during stints at Rutherglen, Wodonga and his second stint at North Albury. With Smith on the sidelines, the popular Peter Westland was appointed acting captain, a position that he would occupy a lot more than anticipated, but more about that later. Yarrawonga, coached by former Leeton star Johnny Gannon, were the Hoppers' first round opponent at Bunton Park. In a seesawing game for three and a half quarters, it was Yarrawonga who blitzed the Hoppers with a stunning finish that netted them six goals in the final five minutes to win by 41 points. Debutants Rod Page, six golds, Barney Brown and Graham Cook were all impressive, along with Wayne Osteris, Wayne Pendergast and Anthony McTavish in a disappointing home loss to start the season. North Albury made the trip south to take on Wangaratta in round two and courtesy of four golds in the last five minutes were able to chalk up a 19 point win. David Gould, Graham Cook, Rudy Johnson and Anthony McTavish were the standouts as North Albury sat sixth position on the ladder after two rounds. Round three was a Sunday home game against Lavington and the massive crowd were not left disappointed as the rivals produced one of the all-time epic home and away contests as 45 goals were kicked in the game. Despite kicking 23 goals, Lavington, the defending premiers, suffered its third straight defeat as North Albury won 153-152 to to beat Lavington for the first time in four years. 
The Hoppers' second and third quarters netted a combined total of 15 goals in a remarkable game. Five goals to Lavington forward Barry Wise in the last 10 minutes almost stole the game for Lavington. Timmy Taylor booted five for North Aubrey, while McTavish, Johnson, Terry Farrell and Gould starred in the midfield. Next up was a trip to John Ford Oval in Corowa, with the Hoppers welcoming back skipper John Smith for his first game of the season. All was going well for the visitors when they led by 37 points late in the first quarter. Despite eight goals from Peter Westland, the Kangaroos fought back superbly to level the scores by three-quarter time and then extended to a final margin of 10 points and its first victory of the season. Rudy Johnson and Westland were best for North Aubrey. Peter Macklin was reported by field umpire Ken Wright for striking ruse Michael Opie in a fiery third quarter. Macklin was suspended for one week. Round five, it was a huge day for North Aubrey with four players reaching milestones but none bigger than captain John Smith, who was playing his 300th senior match in the Ovens and Murray Football League. Smith started with Rutherglen, playing 50 matches. In two stints with North Aubrey, he played 204 matches, 15 matches at Myrtleford and 44 with Wodonga, finishing a brilliant career with 316 first grade games. Smith also represented the Ovens and Murray League on 33 occasions. He won the 1973 Morris Medal, Polled the most votes in 1974's Morris Medal, but was ruled ineligible due to a six-week suspension incurred during the 1973 final series. Smith won the 1970 club best and fairest at Rutherglen, and then three at North Aubrey in 1973, 1981 and 1982. He was an assistant coach to Cole Travaskis in the 1980 North Aubrey Premiership. He coached both Wodonga and North Aubrey. Smith would, in later years, be inducted into both the Ovens and Murray and the North Aubrey Hall of Fames. The other milestones for the clash at home to Benalla were Peter Westland, 150 games, and Bill Mulroney and Rudy Johnson, their 50th game. All were able to celebrate in a commanding 59-point win by the Hoppers. Westland booted six goals with great support from Terry Farrell and Anthony McTavish. Round six was a blockbuster against Wodonga at Martin Park in Wodonga. The second place Bulldogs were coached by North Aubrey's 1980 Premiership coach, Cole Travaskis, which also included fellow North Aubrey Premiership players from that year, Alan Curtis and Peter Clayton. The Bulldogs, with Travaskis dominating, started brilliantly and took a 30-point lead into half-time. Several wasted opportunities at the start of the third quarter cost Wodonga dearly as the Hoppers, led by Rudy Johnson, came storming home. The lead was reduced to five points at the last change. A goal from John Smith put the Hoppers in front for the first time before goals to Brett Allen and Hayden McIntosh put Wodonga back in front. With just two minutes remaining, Rudy Johnson seized on a golden opportunity to kick the final goal and the North Aubrey in front by five points as the siren sounded shortly after. Johnson's heroics were to be a teaser to what was to come later in the season. Marty Cross was a huge fan of the Little Rover. He was uh, a delight to coach, like a little kid. He's like your own son. He's hard not to like, isn't he? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Got a little round face. And yeah. He has a good little giggle every now and then, like a little kid, you know. But he was a hard trainer, hard worker. Didn't Wasn't blessed with the pace that McTavish had. Uh, a heavy ball getter. Got a lot of the footy and a good kick either side of his body. Yeah, just a real tough little goer. 
North Aubrey had little time to celebrate the win as its next opponent in round seven was a home game against Wangaratta Rovers who were unbeaten in all three grades and had kicked 35 goals against Aubrey in its previous match. After an even first quarter, North Aubrey turned on premiership football in a scintillating brand that had them kick 10 goals from 11 scoring shots to lead by 30 points at halftime. At one stage, the lead was over 50 points. The highlight being a superb 55 metre running goal by best on ground, Rudy Johnson. David Gould with five goals was one of 11 goal kickers, while Martin Garoni and Tony Bai had their best games of the season. Despite a Rovers third quarter comeback, the Hoppers steadied and went on to win by 27 points. And for the first time, opposition clubs realised the boys from Bunton Park were the real deal as the league took a week off for the Queen's birthday long weekend. There was, however, a lot happening off the field with the club's financial situation hitting a crisis point and player discontent to outstanding match payments over the previous two seasons was on the rise, ahead of a general meeting of the North Aubrey Football Club Limited on Thursday, June the 6th. In the most sensational meeting held in the history of the North Aubrey Football Club, it was announced by the external accountant for the club, Rod Malavi, that the club was on its knees with a crippling financial debt, making the club's future in serious doubt as it was basically insolvent, meaning ceased paying or unable to pay debts as they fall due in the usual course of business. Rod Malavi takes up the story. Called a meeting of the members, put a bit of a, a proposition as to exactly where, where they, they were sitting financially and they put a motion to that meeting which was passed by the members as part of a solution to getting out of this debt problem was to accept lump sum payment of 15 grand which had been offered by the AHA, but the offer of the 15 grand cash injection, which was obviously pretty attractive, but the condition was that North Albury Football Club Limited drop its liquor licence application. So that was something that the club had been working on for, for well over five years, you know, and that was the condition. But the members voted for it at that time. But Merv McIntosh and some other strong supporters of the club when they learned of that result of that meeting, didn't agree with the idea of giving up that liquor licence application. Merv felt that, you know, that was one of the ways out for North Aubrey to trade more profitably in the future, that they could have a properly functioning licensed club rather than, as I said, rely on those 20-cent raffles. So Merv got together and very quickly, uh, with a few other supporters, came up with an alternative approach. He got commitments from a number of North Albury Footy Club supporters, which was uh, in, in quantum enough to either match or exceed the 15 grand that had been offered by the AHA. So it was a real alternative in terms of the cash injection. But his condition that he imposed on this money was that the members would also have to vote to replace the board with Merv's group and they would take over the running of the club and that that club would continue then with the full liquor licence application. So there we have it, there was an alternative. So then the famous meeting, which was then held on the 6th of June, as I recall, to decide the outcome virtually of those two propositions. Now, I was the external accountant of the club. I stood up at that meeting, at the start of that meeting, and indicated that the club was technically insolvent and that as a consequence of this, unless something was done, 
then it was my opinion the club should not field the team the next Saturday as it was incurring further debts that it could not pay. So the club was on the brink of bowing out of the competition financially um, if they didn't resolve one way or the other what they were doing at that meeting. So it was a pretty, um, you know, to, to even imagine North Albury not taking the field the next Saturday was just unbelievable. So um, anyway, so the vote on the 6th uh, of June meeting went with Merv's plan and uh, the original motion to abandon the, the licence club concept was rescinded. So the existing board effectively stepped down and an interim committee was then put in place with um, Merv as the interim secretary. Stan Gogol became the, the president or the interim president and Norma Hayes was the interim treasurer. So those interim positions and the new committee members were all duly elected as directors at an AGM later in July, but they got to work immediately following that 6th of June meeting. So the club was then on that path. So the first thing that happened as a result of that, obviously, was the money turned up. The injection of money that had been promised was delivered, and uh, it's hard to say exactly what that was, but I know that it was somewhere between 14 and 18 grand. It was a substantial amount, and everyone put a grand in, basically. So there was either 14 or 18 blokes uh, put a grand in. So that's how it was, was raised. Yeah, well, see, that, that, that meant that they had some money virtually to deal with the debt. But, of course, Merv then said, well, we've got 67 grand. It's not going to go all the way. So his second approach was then to put a a proposal to the players for them to accept half the amount that they were all owed for the 82 and 83 season. And, again, the the figures might be a little bit rubbery, but but it was about 32 grand's worth of players' payment to accept half... Uh, which would have been 16 grand, would have cut 16 grand off the debt as well. So they had to accept that in full settlement of their contractual amounts. And remarkably, the majority of the players accepted the proposition. Um, And so as a result, the debt was significantly reduced. And because the debt to those players in 82 and 83 was then now around 16 grand, the money that had been then put in by those supporters was enough to actually pay that. And I believe they paid that fairly fairly quickly, you know, might have been within 30 days or something like that. So the 82 and 83 debt was gone. Uh, they basically had reduced the debt um, by 30 odd grand uh, immediately within a, a short period of time. So the debt was halved almost, um, you know, within say 30 days. So a terrific start. But of course, there was a, a third part as well, which was the proposal that needed to address the current year's trading and try and stop the bleeding to reduce the trading loss that was accruing for the 84 year. So Merv's third proposal, which was the probably the most controversial of all of them, uh, he, he put the players that um, the players accept that their contracts be just torn up or forgotten about and that all players were then going to be paid the same amount which was $45 a game. And the proposition was was that if players didn't agree, then the club would not stand in their way if they wished to be cleared because Merv's view was that the club could not meet the current level of contractual payment and they had to do something about rather incredibly the vast majority of the players accepted the proposal. And I understand that 
two players stood by the legally binding nature of their contracts. And if you look back on it, they all could have done that, I guess, but the club would have been probably bankrupt. So two, I think, stuck by the original contracts. And, and then, of course, the, uh, Johnny Smith, the captain, decided to leave. So by doing that, they'd halved the debt within, say, 30 days, and the players' payments being clearly the biggest cost of the club had then got um, reduced to a manageable level so that they could go about uh, being back on an even keel, uh, which was quite a remarkable short period of time that that happened, really. With no round of matches in the Ovens of Murray the following Saturday, it gave the new secretary and chief negotiator, Merv McIntosh, an opportunity to speak to all players and negotiate a new match payment scheme. Rod Malavi describes Merv McIntosh's character. Merv, firstly, was a great mate of mine. He was a client of mine as well, but he was a successful local businessman in the trucking industry. Um, his character would be regarded as forthright. He had pretty strong opinions and was very tough when it was necessary. So he, he felt, along with those other supporters, that... The offer by the AHA was really just trying to wipe out the possibility of new club being in opposition to the hotels in that area. The full liquor licence was really the way out of dependency on other fundraising things that hadn't been doing the job financially for North Albury for a while. So they had a view that this was where they needed to go. Uh, but he was no doubt the driver of the club getting out of its financial mess. Um, you know, he drove the required, what could I say, change to the culture of the footy club that was very much needed. You know, for a number of years, the club had been promising things to players that they couldn't deliver. And I know Merv didn't like that one little bit. He always told it like it was. There was no gilding of lilies around Mervyn. He was straight down the line. He was scrupulously honest, and he got people of similar bent around him, like Stan Gogol and Norma Hayes. You know, she was just the most marvellous treasurer for many years to come, but that uh, he got her involved at that time. But he also put his money where his mouth was. He put in more than most people would know. And uh, also then he was very active, being at the club almost full-time. Because he had a pretty successful business, he virtually just, you know, uh, left it and and sat at that footy club sorting things out. He ran the finances with a very keen eye. He, there was no waste. There was certainly no freebies. All the occasional free beer was gone. And uh, every dollar that was raised found its way into the bank account. So uh, they, they were his uh, they were his mantras, I suppose. He, he was the right man for the, you know, they just were required to change very quickly. It sort of had to be a revolution, not an evolution over time. So... You know, things were pretty tough, and you can imagine passions were pretty high. There were people in different camps there. So the club really needed a strong person to just cut through all the emotion and withstand the criticism, so there was a fair bit of, and all the alternative views, and you just needed someone to get on and get the things done. And that's what he did. So I guess Merv really was the driver of the saviour of North Albury Footy Club. With negotiations going on with the playing list, all players made themselves available for the Sunday Round 8 derby against old rivals Aubrey, who were on the bottom of the ladder with seven straight losses. Tim Taylor said not all players were satisfied with Merv's proposal. With me, I came off uh, a pretty good year in 83. Played with Peter Ruskutlick in the O&M and also with uh, Gary Ablett when he um, had his time, so I was playing pretty good footy at that time, so I... Before that, I was on match payments. Not that I'd got them for a few years, but uh, it was about 60 bucks was my match payments. 
Um, this year, as in the 1984 coming through, I booped up to $80 as a contracted player. So that was what the, the start was. Yep. And halfway through the year, there was the hassles with um, – they were broke. So uh, Merv was the new broom with Stan Gogel, and they uh, approached us all and said, look, finances are crook. You've got to take a 20% pay cut. Me, quick as a flash, goes 20%, 80, 64 bucks. Bang, I'm on more money than I was last year. So I said, okay, yeah, we'll accept it. Bang, everybody accepted that all the way through, I think, um, across the board at that. Then about two or three weeks later, they came back and said, it's more dire than that. We now put the proposal, and this was by Murphy McIntosh. He turned around and said, uh, you're now going to accept 50% of what you owed because most blokes hadn't been, well, a fair few blokes hadn't been paid about two and a half yep. years, um, and you had to ex- accept the 50%. They'll pay you 50 at the end of the year, or half of what you owed, and then half um, you just wipe, and then we're all going to go to 45 bucks when there is a draw. To, to the best of my knowledge, there were three of us objected to that. Johnny, and I don't know Johnny's situation, he had his bit with the club, there was Wayne Pendergast, who accepted the 20% when we did, but he said, hang on, I've got a contract that's paying my house off. I think you should honour the contract. In my case, I said, look, you owe me 50, you want to pay me the 50%, no problems whatsoever. If we're paying for nothing, I'll play for nothing. But what you owe me, you owe me. If it needs five years to pay me off for the other 50%, so be it. Now, uh, at that time, that was all all said, so I had to front the committee with uh, Murphy McIntosh there and saying, look, mate, this is what it is. And he said, oh, no, it's my word. And I said, look, I shook hands with the previous guys. You haven't paid me for two years. Yep. And uh, he then, in his typical bluff thing, it wasn't me that said that. I said, yeah, but North Albury Football Club's done it. I've just shaken hands. So we've we've sort of uh, basically had a fair argument. And I just said, look, right, that's the case. I'll go. I said, you can't owe me, you owe me too much money, I'll just wander. So, Were you aware Smithy was probably going to go at that stage? No, not at all. Okay. I, yep. I, I knew he was having his... Um, a similar thing as you, probably Tim. Uh, going what, whatever, he was, whatever he was doing, whether he's been paid or not, he was having his own little argument with them. I shouldn't say little, but he was having his dispute with them. And uh, Pender then turned around and said, well, mate, there's my contract. I accepted the 20%, now you're saying 45 my contract set, you can honour it. And old Murphy got really pissed off. He said, I'll go, I'll go and uh, I'll see about that. I won't do that. And then he took it to solicitors and it was watertight. It didn't matter whether he was playing, it didn't matter whether he was playing seconds, didn't matter whether he was injured. They had to honour the Early thing. It was, a, it was a Mickey Mouse um, contract well paid. <laughs> and and Pender's a wonderful guy. He played yeah. for us for two years. Won a premiership, won a best and fairest. He's a gun. No two worries at all with that. So he had his... Little beef. I've turned around and had mine. After I spoke to the committee, I went home and told Dad. Then uh, the next day, which would have been most probably a Tuesday, I then popped over to Wodonga Training and went and saw Cole Travascus and said to Tracker, look, mate, looks as though I'm having a bit of a bust-up. If it gets to the stage of uh, I've got to find a new club, are you interested? And he said, look, go back, try and sort it out with the club. You belong as a hopper, but... If it gets beyond it, I reckon we'd love to have you. I'd have to see the committee and that's it. But try and go back and, and sort it out. 
Now, unbeknownst to me, I only found out about two or three years later, Dad in front of the committee went over to him and said, you haven't paid this bloke for three years. He's an Ovens and Murray player. He's a premiership player. What the hell are you doing? And if you ever know my dad, he's six foot four. He's got a big booming voice from the military. And he put the wind up on my, I believe, uh, mm. as in the committee weren't real... Uh, we're a little bit taken aback because he's usually an affable sort of bloke, but I think yeah. he gave him the rounds at the table. Oh, I didn't know this until four or five years later when it came out in uh, just a family discussion as it, <laughs> as it comes around. So, um, so basically, that's that's the way it uh, that's the way it was. Um, Crossy came over and saw me. I think the next day on the Wednesday, and said, "Dude, are you are you cutting off your nose to?" Sp- Despite your face, yeah, but just to, in, in terms of, is this that bigger a bigger deal? And I just said to Crossy, "Look, mate, you've been paid for the last couple of years. I haven't." And he sort of gave me that look, and he said, "All right, fair enough." Bang. So we we then went off. I came along to training to Thursday to say, "Well, am I getting a clearance or or not?" At that stage, they then had sorted out whether the old man had given him a rocket or. Crossy had said, why are we doing this? Whatever happened. In the end, they said, no, we'll honour it. We'll pay you the 50%. You're on your 45 um, a week like everybody else and we'll pay you over the next three years of thing. In the end, they end up paying me a year later and just pay the whole lot up eventually. But that was the hassle and that's what, that's what happened. In a remarkable response from Hopper's supporters and Aubrey followers, anticipating a big upset, a massive home crowd flocked into Bunton Park, paying a staggering $4,200 at the gate. Any chance of an upset was blown away by a brilliant running display for North Aubrey on ballers, Rudy Johnson, Bill Mulraney, Graham Cook and Tony By. Up forward, Peter Westland seven golds and Anthony McTavish four. Billy Mulroney explains, despite all the off-field happenings, the players were a very tight-knit group. All the distraction and turmoil that the footy club was going through, I think that actually helped to become a much closer team, played for each other, especially in the second part of the season. The guys simply just wanted to play footy and not worry about what was happening off the field. And I think also, too, I think there was a perception amongst us as a group that the other RM teams looked upon us as a broken team, which helped us form a mentality of us against them. Anyway, I suppose also um, credit sort of mainly to, I guess, to Mark, Coach Martin, Cross, Bernie Bell, who was a voter type guy, um, Lizzie O'Brien and his team of trainers, the other guys like that, Hazy, Bobby Bark, and the others around the club that sort of chipped in, as well as our leaders of the team, you know. Peter Westlands and Terry Farrell and Timmy. Although looking through the team, we had a good mix of younger and a bit older experienced types that were able to, you know, gel together as a tight unit. Yeah, I think we played as a team with no superstars looking to shine. We simply played for each other and our club. Team Banner on the day explained the year pretty well. Not sure who came up with the words. Probably Janet Westland or one of the mates. It said, from rags to riches is our story and this will gain us the ultimate glory. The final margin was 84 points, as North Aubrey's 27 golds was a season high. Despite the win, the game would be twinged with sadness, as it would ultimately be the 204th and final game North Aubrey captain John Smith would play for the club. Smith kicked two golds in his final game. Smith was unable to come to an agreement on his financial playing future with the club and advised them he would be unavailable for the round nine match at Myrtleford while he contemplated his playing future. 
An interested bystander in the goings-on was 1980 North Aubrey Premiership coach and current Wodonga coach Cole Travaskis, who had a strong relationship with Smith, who was his deputy in the 1980 Premiership at North Aubrey. As was a case in those days, Wodonga had to be granted permission by North Aubrey and the Ovens of Murray Football League to speak to Smith about being cleared. North Aubrey, understanding the situation that Smith was in through no fault of his own, granted permission for Wodonga to chat with Smith. Rod Malavi explained the situation and how disappointing it was for all. Johnny Smith, if I can make some comments about John, you know, he, look, he, he was and is a champion of the North Aubrey Footy Club and of the O&M League, the Morris medalist, of course, and he's in the O&M Hall of Fame and, of course, he's rated in the top 25 players of all time given his team of century induction. And, of course, in 1984, he was the captain of the club. He was on the highest player contract. Why wouldn't he be? He was an outstanding player. But I want to make this clear, you know, it was North Aubrey Footy Club that let John Smith down. It wasn't the other way. Goodness me, how many players hadn't been paid for two years and the club was technically insolvent, It still kept offering contracts each year for the same or in some cases more money. And it was happening again in 1984. So my memory was that there was no animosity felt at the time by the people that knew the situation towards John leaving. And who could blame him? Who could blame him? Uh, I guess the biggest surprise really was that there was not a lot more players who didn't leave. But losing John was significant because he was a walk-up start in the team, of course, and to lose your captain and a quality player like him was challenging from a footy sense at the time. And, of course, then it played out this amazing thing that happened that ultimately North Aubrey would play Wodonga, uh, which is quite amazing when you think about it in that grand final that year. I think certainly has brought that move by John to Wodonga into more focus over the many ensuing years. And I've no doubt that John may ponder on the what-ifs, maybe as a result of that. John Smith is held in the highest regard at North Aubrey as one of its champions. He, he was made a life member of the club well after all those things had happened. He's been inducted into the North Aubrey uh, Hall of Fame and he's just fronted up so many times to club functions where the 1984 Premiership is some focus. And, you know, he's just a, just a hell of a, a good fellow. And if I can say, I recall uh, the Tuesday following the grand final, because the grand final and people having a great time and the following day all the players are on the drink and all the rest. But John Smith came over on the Tuesday morning before the majority of the other players got there and he had a drink with Peter Westland and I just happened to be there as well. And he, he came over to, to congratulate Pete and to say well done. Um, I think it was the mark of the man really. Um, I think he, he didn't want to go to leave North Aubrey but I think he on principle thought he, he just had to. So um, so I, I reckon John Smith's just a fine human being and I, and I truly hope that he does not beat himself up over this anymore because he surely does not deserve that. Timmy Taylor, who along with Wayne Pendergast negotiated a suitable agreement to play out the season, said he was surprised when Martin Cross approached him about a new role at the club. Crossy sort of said, well, because John's gone, Peter Westland's now going to be captain. He spoke to me before training and he said to Flossy, uh, Terry Farrell will be Vice-Captain, I want you to be Deputy Vice. And I said to him, mate, are you sure? I said, yeah, I was one of the three that had a problem. He said, mate, 
we've now got a line on the sand. We're all going together. I reckon we've got a good group here. This is the way it's going to be. Do you want it? And I just said, look, I'd be honoured, but, you know, you've got to be happy. He said, coolest cats, I'm good. We're going forward. And that's that was sort of the lead-in or, or the, the aftermath of... Uh, the contracts yeah. so I've gone from potentially going <laughs> yeah. to suddenly become part of the leadership group. And really when when it's most in my time, footy's footy, you just love playing footy and you just put it aside yeah. and you just move on. So the Hoppers made the trip to Myrtleford to complete the halfway point of the season without its captain, Johnny Smith. And the reality he had played his last game for North Aubrey and was heading to Wodonga. In a tough and bruising encounter at Myrtleford, North Aubrey took control in the last quarter and led by 13 points until the Saints, spurred on by a vocal home crowd, kicked the final six goals of the game to run out 24-point winners in their fullback, Bob McNamara's 150th game. Tony Bye, Rudy Johnson and Timmy Taylor were the best for North Aubrey as they completed the halfway point of the season with six wins and three losses. Johnson recalled the happenings at the time off the field. When I suppose you know when the shit did hit the fan, the younger guys and we had quite a, probably seven or eight of us that were all similar age, which was I think were a really good thing as well because all we wanted to do was actually play footy. So we realised it was getting pretty serious when we had that big meeting with Merv McIntosh and we looked at you know we we're looking at each other and thinking, God, are we going to play next week? And it was that serious and you know it was a very heated discussion that meeting uh, that night. So we didn't know what was going to happen. So once we were okay to once when you we were playing, you know, for the younger guys, it was just, yeah, we wanted to play footy and uh, we didn't know about the politics too much and we didn't probably really care at the time. North Aubrey held down fourth place in both seniors and seconds, while Wangaratta Rovers were leading in all three grades. Ross Flanagan from Yarrawonga, with 47 goals, was leading from Peter Ruskutlick, the Myrtleford coach, on 44, with Peter Westland on 37, in seventh place. Plenty was about to happen before round 10 commenced, with Wodonga being approved permission by North Aubrey to speak to John Smith about being cleared to the Bulldogs. Wodonga coach Cole Travaskis and his coaching panel had addressed the Bulldogs committee on the Sunday after round nine about Smith's availability. Bulldogs secretary at the time, John Murray, confirmed that approval was given to approach Smith about playing out the season with Wodonga and the conditions to play were laid out. John's always been sad that that happened. Of course, he's in the Hall of Fame of uh, North Aubrey and that, and he was very touched by that. And Because he'd been there 11 years and played some great footy for North Aubrey, and we didn't want him to leave. And, and I just think his hands were a bit tight at the, at the, at the time, and so, so be it. Days later, officials from both clubs met on the Thursday night before training and negotiated a quick clearance that had Smith cleared to play for Wodonga just two weeks after his final game with North Aubrey. Smith was subsequently selected for round 10 for the Bulldogs game against Lavington. North Aubrey defender and 1980 Premiership teammate of Johnny Smith, Terry Farrell, explained the mood in the Hopper camp. 
I think we were probably a bit numb. We'd just lost Smitty, who was our mate, as well as our captain, probably arguably our best player. So the feeling around the club was pretty understandable. So awkward for him and awkward for everyone, I think. So, And I suppose everyone had been asked to take, well, whether it be a considerable pay cut or whatever at the time. And we honestly weren't sure if we'd even feel the team come Saturday. So that, that was that was probably the, the biggest thing. I don't know, we just had to wait and see. I'd actually been talking to Wizard during the week after this all, the fan, and um, we just said, oh, well, well, we'll rock along and we'll see who's there, you know. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, I'd, like I said, I've been talking to Wizard and so so we just decided between ourselves that we'd, well, we'll just turn up training and give it our best and have a bit of fun on the way. That's what we did. And, and literally we had no idea who'd be turning up for training or the next training run due to those pay cuts, et cetera, and stuff. So, and, you know, we, we got down there and we were pleasantly surprised when we rocked up a train and started, I think we started doing a few warm-up laps and looking around thinking, oh, who's here? Oh, Crossy's here. That's a start. <laughs> so, and then and then we, we sort of soon realised, I think, that, that we'd retained everyone bar Smithy. So at the time, that said a lot about playing group that we had and, and I think they were playing for the jump and more than the money anyway, like back in those days. The line in the sand had been drawn at Button Park. The head kicking was over, the recovery or field was well underway. All was left now for the coaching and playing staff to get on with what was a wonderful chance to turn this season into something special. Martin Cross explains. I taught my way. No, I didn't want anybody to leave. But if they stayed, we wanted to have a culture that was good around the club. In, in regards to, like I'd been called a Bible basher and things like this, but I wasn't. I have my faith and, and that's, it. that's my faith, okay? But things like respect and for yourself, for your club, for your supporters, for the mums and dads and everything like that. I was down on bad language where you hear it at three-quarter time, half-time, you know, people going off and stuff like that. I hated that sort of stuff. And so, um, and the booze. Like, I didn't like booze through the week. I didn't mind them having a few beers of a Saturday night if they want to go and have a Saturday night or go out to dinner with their family or something like that. Just made that clear, but to have blokes in back rooms had to confront that at Myrtleford too. So I was coming from experience and dealing with that sort of stuff so that we're all on the same page. We're all committed to doing what we had to do, committed to each other and committed to the club. To complete a big week, North Albury made the trip to Yarrawonga, who were in third place Equal on wins, but with a slightly better percentage than the Hoppers. In an absorbing contest, North Albury extended its narrow three-quarter time lead to 26 points midway through that final term. What happened next was stunning football from the Pigeons as they booted the last eight goals of the game in a devastating 15-minute burst to win by 26 points and rock the battered and bruised Hoppers. Furious with the side's capitulation, North Albury coach Martin Cross ordered that no awards to be given out post-game. Back-to-back losses only compounded what had been a terrible three weeks for the club. Hopper runner Barry Hayes said that all was not lost on the day, as injured backman Robert Harrington had set him onto the ground for a vital message to the captain Peter Westland and deputy vice-captain Tim Taylor. I got a message from Robert Harrington, Picara. I had to, I went out about the 15 minute mark. Anyway, I went out there and said, Timmy, Westy, get here. He said, we just got the trifecta. Anyway, Crossy come, uh, when I got back to the box and uh, 
across. He said, what was that about? I said, oh, I just went in a bit early. Played about three grand too. A return home to Bunton Park was just the tonic the hoppers needed and they returned to the winners list with new captain Peter Westland leading the way with five goals, getting great support from dynamic on-ball crew Rudy Johnson, Tony McTavish and Graham Cook. There was no last quarter fade out on this occasion, something that had been addressed in a brutal week on the training track as the hoppers won by 42 points in front of a season low crowd. Next up, was a Sunday blockbuster against last year's Premier's Lavington, who were languishing in seventh place with just four wins and desperate to take a scalp and keep alive its title defence. Keep their season alive they did, as Lavington led from start to finish in a grinding 22-point win in front of just over 2,000 spectators. Terry Farrell did a superb job on Lavington star forward Warren Stanlake to be the hopper's best. At the other end of the ground, hopper's skipper, Peter Westland was held to just one gold as the loss left North Aubrey in a precarious position with a seven win, five loss ratio and just half a game ahead of sixth place Benalla. The loss was the Hoppers third in its last four games, all since the departure of its former captain, Johnny Smith. Well, what a story unfolding at Bunton Park. Hopefully you enjoyed part A of this episode. Thanks to our wonderful sponsors, North Aubrey Football and Netball Club, Martin's Bus Lines, North Aubrey Tire Power, MLM Electrical, Lavington News Agency, Rudy Johnson Real Estate and the North Aubrey Players and Administration from 1984. Make sure you join us for the final part of North Aubrey 1984, Rags to Riches. But for now, thanks for listening, stay safe and catch you soon on Glory Days.